Hello and welcome to All Things Small Business, brought to you by DAU. I'm Ken Karka, DAU Small Business Learning Director. This series is offered as a continuing dialogue between government, industry, and academia on acquisition-related issues that impact small businesses who support the critical defense industrial base. Let's join today's conversation. Welcome to All Things Small Business. I'm your host, Anthony Rotolo, and this is the show where acquisition and small business meet. We bring together business owners, contract experts, policymakers, and stakeholders, and we explore the issues facing small business and acquisition professionals as they work together to overcome challenges in a government and defense context. Now, we've got a little roundtable today. I've got a couple of guests My guests today are Kevin Burnett. He is the technical director for PEO MLB and Andrew Powell, CEO of L2W. We're going to define those slightly cryptic acronyms in a moment, but let me introduce our guests a little bit further. Andrew Powell is the co-founder and CEO of Learn to Win. That's that L2W. L2W is a learning tech company serving high-performance organizations, including professional sports teams in the NFL, NHL, and NBA, and the U.S. Department of Defense, as well as Fortune 500 companies. We've also got Kevin Burnett. Kevin is the technical director for the Navy's Program Executive Office for Manpower, Logistics, and Business Solutions, and that's the acronym PEO. MLB. In this role, he establishes and drives the technical vision for the PEO with an emphasis on data, innovation, workforce empowerment, and digital transformation. But let's get to our guests, Kevin and Andrew. Welcome Thanks to All Things me. Small Business. Thanks, Anthony. Great to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you. I, I want to uh, just take a, a moment to explore just a little further i want to help define that peo mlb and now this is i'm going to confess i'm i'm reading some verbiage that i took from the website peo mlb is the department of navy's manpower logistics and business solutions information technology acquisition agent the system solutions that peo mlb develops acquires and delivers are the backbone enabling the DON's day-to-day administrative, business, and financial operations. I want to stop there. I just want to unpack that a, a little bit. Kevin, if you would, just uh, help help exposit that for us a little bit further. Sure. Like, if you kind of were to just summarize it, our organization is responsible for delivering the applications for sailors, Marines, and civilians that runs the Department of the Navy finance, uh, logistics, information technology, you know, putting, getting parts to the right place, maintaining operations associated with delivering uh, supplies and resources to the right place at the right time, manpower in terms of human resource, human capital for the military. So we like to describe it as delivering IT that supports the sailor from hire to retire. Uh, that includes uh, training and education. And that's, that's kind of how we got connected to learn to win along the way. And so my role as the technical director, um, you, you mentioned uh, establishing the technical vision for PEOMLB. Part of that technical vision is how do we collaborate with industry and seek opportunities to transition innovative technologies within these huge acquisition programs that we are responsible for for the Department of the Navy. 
Thank you. Thank you. And of course, it's one of the the big, big goals of all this. We want to see government partner with the private sector so we can absorb technology quickly. We can keep pace with high technology. And as you said, support those sailors and Marines and other civilians throughout their career with all these things, all the logistics of, of getting the, the systems and services that they need. So this is very exciting. Let's begin with Andrew with some of the questions I had for you t- today. I wanted to ask you, Andrew, how did Learn to Win begin working in the military sector? So we got started through a program called Hacking for Defense, and it's a really incredible program sponsored by ONR, um, where my co-founder and I, we were in graduate school at Stanford in the business program. And we took Hacking for Defense um, because uh, we were really interested in uh, the opportunity to learn entrepreneurial skills in a real world setting. Um, and uh, the teaching team there are kind of legends in uh, innovation and entrepreneurship and venture. A guy named Steve Blank, who is a multi-time uh, billion dollar company founder, um, was teaching the course. Uh, and then we were really intrigued by the problems that uh, the defense stakeholders would bring into that class. And in particular, we saw a uh, problem posted from the Air Combat Command, uh, specifically the Training Support Squadron in the Air Force. And it was basically saying, hey, we uh, are facing some challenges in pilot training and, and we'd like some tech innovation and some, some new ideas um, for how we can improve the outcomes, improve the throughput, improve the efficiency of pilot training to train more combat-ready aviators faster. Uh, and so through the, the course, Hacking for Defense, we were able to work with about 100 different people across the Air Combat Commands to really understand their problems, uh, the pain points they were feeling, and then come up with a solution. And so that was uh, kind of our first exposure to these really interesting opportunities in kind of the world of um, defense innovation. Uh, and coming out of that course, we were awarded a direct-to-phase two SBIR from AFWorks. And that gave us some money to prototype the ideas that we'd identified into a full-fledged solution. And then kind of from there, we were able to transition that into a phase three contract. Uh, And then pretty soon after, we linked up with Kevin at Naval X, uh, which then started our work with with the Navy. But um, it all kind of got started in that hacking for defense program at Stanford, which I'm really grateful that I was exposed to that since it's become a really big part of the mission of our company. When we, you say hacking for defense, are we talking about that white hat hacking that you have to learn to protect you know, our cybersecurity and our systems? Or w- what do we mean by this hacking? Uh, so it's, it's more of a general term for, I would say, tinkering or innovating. Um, and so while there are some cybersecurity teams that come out of that course, uh, it's, it's kind of more hacking in the sense of, um, let's see if we can put together a creative solution really quickly and cheaply through the, the lean startup methodology. Uh, and it's it's a program that started at Stanford, just a you know a ten week course where you have grad students, undergrads across all different disciplines that work with folks in the Department of Defense to try and come up with solutions to problems that they raise in a collaborative environment. Um, and it's actually expanded to uh, I think forty or fifty different universities across the country because it's been very successful. And and due to you know financial sponsorship by ONR and other organizations, that course has become um, a a real kind of national presence, uh, which I think is great. You know, the more you can bring together uh, innovators who are thinking about starting companies with uh, the really interesting and important problems to work on for government, I think it's it's just a great uh, combination. It's actually been a great uh, opportunity for PEMLB as well beyond our connection to learn to win. 
in that now that we've partnered with the Hacking for Defense program, we, we can get access directly to some of those research experts to include students at Stanford to, to look at hard problems that, you know, I, I kind of view it hacking for defense in the context of hacking through bureaucracy. You know, these the, the, the folks at this program can can kind of, you know, they have free reign to, to get access to resources to kind of tackle some of these problems, whereas it could take months, even years to do the same thing in the government. And so we, we have now a, a line of communication with this program by which we can send them problems for their their students to investigate uh, over a period of a semester or two. I suppose you need a large machete to hack through all the red tape sometimes. But I think that's a good aspiration because it sounds like just finding the way to solve problems quickly. Right. And then it becomes a matter of, OK, now we've got this great solution. How do we transition it? into operations to support our warfighters. And that's where, you know, we, we, I, I want to get into some of the, the, the meat behind that, you know, with the, some of the successes we've had, the failures, because I think that's uh, a ripe opportunity to, to lean some processes and, and really think differently about how we normalize this type of industry acquisition program intersection such that we have normal behavior about adopting some of these things into these larger programs of record. So, Kevin, this actually leads us to the part of the story where you join forces with someone like Andrew. How did you hear about L2W? Yeah, so it's um, it's it's a, an interesting story because the, the outcome is fantastic and it's also very troubling at the same time, the same outcome. And what I mean by that is um, I'm, I was kind of struggling personally in terms of what I wanted to do from a career perspective when I was at PO Enterprise Information Systems. And so PO Enterprise Information Systems in the 2018, 17, 18 timeframe um, split into PEO Digital and PEO MLB. And I was going to work for PEO MLB. And I've been doing a lot of the same thing for, for several years. And so uh, by chance, I happened to go to a meeting at Naval X's facility uh, in Alexandria. And for those unaware, Naval X's the agility cell for the Department of Navy stood up by uh, Secretary Gertz when he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research Development and Acquisition. And the, the underlying premise of Naval X is make connections, make connections where they, they don't exist. And it, when I had my meeting over there, I got to talking to some of the rotationals who, who, who were on, on site there. And, and that's how Naval X is staffed. It's, it's not billeted personnel whose full-time job is at Naval X. It's commands letting some of their folks go for an extended period of time and, and work in this connection, you know, innovation space. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. I have a colleague who is doing a rotation at Naval X right now. Very exciting opportunity for her. Yeah, and that's that's what I got to see firsthand just by participating in a meeting there. And I, I left that meeting and I was like, wow, how do I, you know, that's inspiring for me. How do I go be a rotational there? And so I approached my leadership and then at, at PEOEIS and I said, Look, can I can I go do this for a year? And lucky for me, I was very grateful. They they were like, oh, absolutely, let's let's make it happen. They they put an MOA in place. I I began a one year rotation over there, and my role was standing up their digital line of effort. You know, how can we track connections that Naval X is facilitating? How can we track those connections all the way through to some outcome? And you know, it turned out one of the first connections that got made was completely by chance. Uh, one of the deputy director at the time at Naval X, Commander Sam Gray, went by Chubbs, happened to be uh, a student at Stanford's uh, Ignite program. And through some connections out there in California, met Andrew and, and, and some of the folks who were just building out Learn to Win. And um, 
I happen to be having a conversation with them about what we did at PEO Manpower Logistics Business Solutions and Manpower Personnel Training Education came up. And he said, hey, I know these guys starting this company called Learn to Win. They deliver these uh, micro learning modules via mobile app to coaches to deliver playbooks um, at the collegiate and professional level. And I said, wow, that's fascinating. Let's set up a meeting. Uh, we come to find out that, you know, they had this phase two SBIR with AFWorks in the Air Force. And I said, oh, well, oh, how can we get some of that action for the Navy? So we we worked with our Navy SBIR office and did a piggyback phase two. And we're still underway with that phase two now. But now we're applying Navy gravity and Navy use cases using Learn to Win to deliver micro learning for uh, general training, um, for um uh, training on application usage, uh, best practices for agile software development, um, all these other use cases popped up. And th- th- the reason I, and that sounds like a fantastic story, but the reason I said it's, it's also troubling is I had to be in the right place at the right time talking to the right person. It, it wasn't really, it wasn't a normal event that should be a normal event. And I, that's where I think there's a great opportunity when I talk about normalizing behavior between conversations with acquisition programs and these small businesses or conduits to these small businesses, as opposed to them just being by chance. I think you've kind of explained what caught your eye with L2W was those uh, micro learning modules. But what was the specific mechanism that you used just from a um, either contractual standpoint or what have you that allowed you to pull L2W into a partnership with you? Well, because, because of the flexibility of the SBIR program, already having this phase two with the Air Force, we were able to award a direct to phase two for the Navy, leveraging that phase two for the Air Force. Phase one is, is the very obviously introductory opportunity for working with a small business to kind of proof of principle, perhaps do some, some basic prototyping, white papers in what you would then compete to get to a phase two. And so the Air Force had done that with Learn to Win, and we were able to leverage through the flexibility SBIR program that work that Air Force had already done in terms of that initial investigation. We had a a use case for the Navy is very similar to the Air Force. We were just able to uh, award a direct-to-phase two SBIR, which is where you get uh, a little bit more resources to do a little bit more investigative work, a little higher fidelity prototyping. And that's exactly what we were able to do by piggybacking off of that phase two that the Air Force had with a Navy phase two. We were then allowed able to bring on 25 plus new customers to prove out the efficacy of what Learn to Win can do as far as micro learning is concerned with all of these disparate use cases that even the Air Force had considered. And so we were really able to open the aperture of opportunity for demonstrating how this capability can benefit across this wide spectrum of use cases that weren't originally being considered. Now, Andrew, Kevin, whomever of you wants to tackle this one, at the start of the partnership, how long did it take for the Department of Navy to get L2W working on good use cases? Well, I, I'll start, Andrew. Maybe you can you, you can add and give your perspective on it as the actual deliverer of the capability. But um, what, what was a really great opportunity for us was actually talking to the Air Force partners first and foremost. Since, since they were the ones who originally engaged with Learn to One, had this phase one, phase two SBIR that we were able to leverage, we could do the same thing in terms of leveraging with use cases that they had identified in their work with Learn to Win already. 
Um, a lot of them were, were maintenance related in terms of, 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 of aircraft. Um, uh, some of them were related to aviation training. And so we were able to see those initial use cases and the value proposition for the micro learning concept being applied to them and then find comparable ones within the Department of the Navy. Um, for example, for manpower logistics and business solutions, I mentioned we deliver capabilities for obviously logistics, finance, acquisition systems, enterprise operations management, criminal justice. I'm mentioning a lot of different information domains. And so they're going to have different material solutions for, for each of them. That doesn't mean the way we deliver training for those applications needs to be unique or different. And so being able to have a platform like Learn to Win allows us to normalize the way in which we deliver in very small segments of content that training such that it can lead to better retention for the folks who are actually taking it. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the beauties of the Learn to Win platform is just the flexibility in how it's super easy to build content about any different topic. Um, it's really engaging and effective as far as the learning experience. And then there's powerful analytics that you can get real time about how that learning is is working. Um, but one of the challenges that you run into as a founder of a software company that ostensibly could serve you know any different training mission is is where can you focus? What should be the the first use case that you go after. And that's where it's been incredibly helpful working with the SBIR program, working with Kevin and his team and others within within the Air Force as well to get their mentorship and guidance of, hey, here's where we think you should focus to really deliver the most value initially to kind of prove efficacy. And through the prototypes and the use cases that we've done through the SBIR, I think that has positioned us really strongly with a stronger vector on here's exactly where we can drive the most value within uh, the Department of the Navy within the Air Force. And um, we've actually expanded into the Space Force and uh, some federal and civilian agencies as well. And uh, a lot of it has come back to just those proof points of those initial use cases where we demonstrated value. Andrew, I want to take a deeper dive on your software as a learning product and service. I believe this is software as a service. If you can just explain to our listeners, some of whom are DAU, DAU is a learning organization. Just explain what that software is like. Are you are you giving over the the authoring ability to the Department of Navy with the software? So I'm trying to understand as a micro learning tool, how is the authoring executed and how is it distributed? Sure, that's a great question. So really simply, there's kind of two components to the Learn to Win platform. There's a web application where instructors can build learning content. And so you can just go to our website, sign in, and then it's really fast and easy to use. We, we like to say it's easier than building a PowerPoint to create these mobile learning lessons. And then the other part of it is our mobile application, Learn to Win. It's accessible on phone, tablet, or the internet in any web browser, as well as we've actually got it hosted on government secure systems. So the DoD Platform One environment is, is hosting Learn to Win, so it's accessible up to impact level six or secret. And that's where learners will go to consume the content, to take lessons. And the, the learning experience is kind of like Duolingo or Rosetta Stone or any of these really interactive mobile learning applications. Um, but the secret sauce is that it's super easy for anybody to build content about any topic. And so just as we have, a you know, the Carolina Panthers have built out their playbook and or maybe the LA Rams since they're playing in the Super Bowl. That's a better customer example. You know, the Rams have tons and tons of information they need to teach their players. The players need to master it and execute with a high degree of precision. Uh, and before Learn to Win, they were, 
you know, creating PowerPoints or three ring binders with all the plays. They were sending out videos uh, on their video hosting platform. They were having team meetings where they draw things up on a whiteboard. And what they've been able to do is kind of shift all of that informal teaching and learning into a more formalized, structured, highly interactive, engaging learning experience through Learn to Win. And I think maybe most importantly, as learners complete all of that learning in our platform, it generates a ton of data about exactly what they're getting right, what they're missing, which can then inform the coach to say, hey, I just noticed that half of our wide receivers are missing this particular play. Maybe we don't want to run that this week against the Bengals. Like, let's maybe pull that out and focus uh, on a, a play that everybody is you know, perfectly prepared to run. Um, and through that, you can really get this, you know, agile approach to training where you're you know, delivering content, you're seeing what people are missing, you're then intervening to improve the skills gaps that you've identified, uh, and just brings a ton more visibility than a lot of the, you know, traditional ways of doing training, which might have been three ring binders, PowerPoints, you know, Zoom calls, uh, or even some traditional computer based trainings that don't have that data rich uh, environment or the ability to customize and adapt as you identify needs for improvement. Outstanding. Yeah. Nothing against three ring binders, but you know, the, the phones in our pockets are very, very handy. Are you referring to the analytics side of this that allows you to measure performance and then make adjustments to the, the learning? So it becomes kind of an iterative loop. Exactly. I, I think that's a really key point, Anthony, that a lot of the value that we bring is not just the you know, ease of authoring and the, you know, effective learning, um, but it's really the ability to adapt and change over time. And I think, you know, there's a good quote that says, you know, the right decision today is not the one that predicts the future. It's the one that enables you to deal with what the future brings. And I think that's very true about a lot of our areas of training where you need to have this agile infrastructure where as the world changes, as the needs change, as your role changes, you can quickly adapt and upskill uh, and, and that's the, the flexibility, I think a platform like learn to win brings where if, you know, one week into a new training program, you realize there's something that has, uh, has changed and that maybe the, the concept is new or the software that you're training on is there, there's a new feature or even just the points of emphasis that you want to drive are different. We give the instructors the tools to, to change that with just a few clicks of a button and then push that out to their users uh, so that everything's always up to date and you're not stuck using, you know, old curriculum or old material to teach in, in a new emerging area where uh, it, it really, the, the, the concepts that you're teaching, the skills you're developing need to be fresh and, and up to date. Excellent. I, I want to direct this question to Kevin, uh, just based on what Andrew was explaining. Specifically in the Department of the Navy, how have you been interested in L2W. And I I just want you to help us sort of see the day in the life of a particular user, kind of the use case, how they interact with this micro learning kind of in the day to day. Yeah. So, I I mean, I I think of there's I can think of three general personas that you have. You, You have, you know, sailors and Marines who need to take general training. That's just part of, you know, being a sailor and a Marine. And right now they have, you know, GNT type training that is is pretty dated generally and there, there's no consistent platform in, in how it's delivered and so from a, a a customer experience perspective learn to win provides that opportunity of normalizing that experience and also providing the tools to keep pace with the content on a more regular basis and it's empowering the actual content creators to to to, to modify that content as opposed to having to 
you know, let a contract to develop a new application uh, just to deliver that content. And, and so that's, that's a, a great uh, rationalization opportunity for that persona. Another persona is, is training for how sailors and Marines do their business. If they're, a, you know, a mechanic, you know, a logistician, uh, if they're working in finance, a lot of these business processes can be very complicated um, for, for particular functions in the Navy. And, and I see two opportunities there. One is obviously getting a sense real time on the performance of those sailors and Marines on performing those tasks. But also that could lead you to think through, okay, well, if, if the vast majority of the people taking this particular micro module are failing these particular questions, well, maybe we've got a business process problem. You know, that doesn't make much sense. And it's not an IT problem. We need to go, you know, revisit the business process and perhaps lean that. And then the third is, is on application training. You know, we obviously have a lot of custom business processes in the Department of the Navy and applications are heavily customized and complicated. And so it provides us an opportunity to deliver real-time training on how to use that application, both in production, but also during development. So if you think about that, if, if you have users who are helping you with your kind of A-B testing, evaluating alternatives for how you're going to satisfy an application to deliver a particular function, you can use a tool like Learn to Win to kind of game that system and get real-time feedback on, well, okay, they're not retaining how to do this particular function. Maybe the user experience is not good. And we need to revisit that from an application development perspective. Yeah, very helpful. I, I like a lot of the points you made, and in particular, the one about how it lets you discern between whether you have a training problem or maybe you have a business problem. You know, sometimes we're about to train on broken processes, and we have to fix that before we go ahead and do the training. The other point that you made early on, is, I, I think you were alluding to the fact that this allows you to kind of uh, uh, take charge of the sustainment tail, which traditionally had been a, another cost for organizations where they create the training, but then they have to let another contract to revise the training rather than being empowered to update it in-house. So it sounds like this is doing all those things for you. Yeah, it definitely shortens the timeline from, you know, making a change in the IT or the business process to having training that aligns with it. Yeah. You know, like you said, typically that's that's multiple months um, and it doesn't need to be. Right. Now, did you have any technical hurdles in implementing this? Yeah, we, we kind of get in our own way sometimes from from a, a Navy perspective. One of the, the technical challenges were, well, two technical challenges, they're kind of connected. One is DevOps. You know, I, I realize that's a, a loaded term. You know, some people say DevSecOps, some people say, oh, well, security should be baked into development and operations. And I'm not going to get into that. But DevOps from a, a material standpoint, from a continuous integration, continuous delivery standpoint, is, is not well um, implemented in the Department of the Navy. We have some pockets of teams that have had some success. Uh, we, we consistently have a challenge of getting the automation right from going to from development to production. And that's true DevOps. That's that's connecting those two elements together. That's the whole premise. And so we can get just the development right or just the operations right, but connecting the two has been a, a cyber challenge. And, and that's something where the Air Force has made a lot of headway. And we've been trying to leverage that, but the results of you know, trying to, to fight this within the Navy has been a lot of time wasted kind of spinning our wheels. And, and the impact to us is, is not as huge as it is to a small business like Learn to Win. 
And, and for example, you know, when Learn to Win first came in, we started, I, I mentioned we leveraged the Air Force uh, Phase 2 SBIR. Well, they are, we're already talking about delivering via Platform One, which is a, a cloud-hosted DevOps capability for the Air Force. And so we were going to the path of, oh, okay, let's just point Navy users to the instance of Learn to Win hosted on Platform One. But we did get a lot of pushback because, you know, we're, we're, we're the Navy and, you know, the Navy needs to accept the risk for Navy data. And, you know, we, we couldn't really go down that Platform One path. And so we started looking at other options within the Navy. And it seemed like every way we turned, we would always hit some kind of roadblock along the way to come full circle back to provisioning it on Platform One. And so, like I said, the, the result for us was a, a kind of a year of, of kind of trying to investigate and figure out the best way forward on this. The result to a small business is, you know, it's, it's a lot more detrimental. And I'm sure Andrew can, can allude to kind of the challenges they faced as a small business, kind of with the, what I can only describe as a, a runaround we did with them for a period of time. Yeah, I think Kevin and I were talking about this a little bit um, yesterday, but there, there are some, I would, I would think maybe structural challenges that small businesses and I'd say in particular, um, like venture backed startups who have a you know, institutional investor that invests in a, a equity round. And then some of the timelines that then those uh, companies run into with the cycle of decisions or the, you know, time to field a solution in government. And from from the startup perspective, typically the way that like a software venture uh, backed company is funded is you'll raise one round of capital. In our case, it was a four million dollar seed round in early 2020. And the investor, when they're making that investment, um, is kind of funding the company for typically 12 to 18 months is the amount of time you have because you raise that money and then you hire a bunch of engineers, you hire product developers, you know, maybe salespeople or customer success. Uh, so you staff up really quickly and then you're trying to run as fast as possible and um, basically prove that you have identified a real problem and you can build a great product within a year uh, or maybe 18 months. And then what happens at the end of that is you try to go out and raise your next round of funding, which in our case is uh, Series A. And if you've made a lot of progress and you've demonstrated, hey, we built a great product, we got customers that like it, you know, they have uh, been using it in mission critical situations, they're willing to pay for it. Uh, in fact, they want to renew and they want to pay us more. Then investors will say, great, you know, you're one of the just 10% of companies or so that have proven you're worthy of the next round of funding and we'll write you a bigger check for Series A. But unfortunately, if if you you know come back a year later or, or 18 months later and you're like, well, we we mostly built the product, but we haven't really been able to deploy it. Uh, and we got kind of held up on uh, the cyber accreditation. And so we haven't actually signed any contracts yet, but we we think it's going to come through and we hope it will. You know, those investors might just say, ah, sorry, like you didn't make enough progress. We've got other people over here who have you know demonstrated 300 percent growth and they've signed all these deals. And so we're going to go and fund them instead. And it might be a really promising technology. It might be a great company that could make a ton of impact if you just gave them another year or two. But those are some of where the the timelines or the, it, it may seem like if it takes six months or 12 months to award a contract, like, well, we should, you know, folks should be more patient. And I, I kind of wish that that was the world that we lived in. But unfortunately, the the cycles of venture funding in particular make it really challenging for there to be those delays, especially when you're in an environment as a, a small startup where, you know, you've got to meet payroll and unless you want to lay off people, then it's it's hard to, you know, prolong some of those cycles. Um, and so 
I, I think that's a, kind of a, a structural thing of how how can we get these two worlds that you know operate on pretty different cadences to mesh well together so that you know the investors aren't left you know frustrated and thinking that there's not opportunity, but then we're also not expecting you know these really complex decisions that do need to take a lot of planning and and make sure that we do it the right way aren't rushed uh, just because of you know, trying to adapt to a, a, a venture uh, investment cycle. Yeah, I like how you said that. Uh, there's a lot of different moving parts. They're different on each side and different cadences. So to get them working together so that you have a working partnership is the goal. Uh, after, I just want to ask at, at that phase one where you kind of showed your worth and were uh, kind of earning your second round of funding, what did you come out of that first phase with? Was it uh, working prototypes or something more than a proof of concept? Yeah, so the, the phase one is is really about kind of researching and understanding the problem of is is there a problem there if so you know who has it um and so for us that was we interviewed i think 107 different people involved in the the air force's pilot training process so pilots instructors you know folks involved in schoolhouses in you know flight line operations in the towers like just kind of all sorts of different folks and asking them what's your perspective? What do you think is working? What do you think is not working? You know, what are some of the the pain points you're running into? Um, and that led to about a, I don't know, probably 20 page research report of here's everything we heard. Here's the common themes. Here are kind of the highest leverage uh, places where we think we could make an impact. And so we, we submitted that report as our deliverable and um, it actually made its way all the way up to uh, the director of operations for air combat command. Um, who, who sent a note to us. We were still just a student team. And he said, hey, I read your report. I think that there's a lot of promise to this. Uh, I'd like to, you know, sponsor you for this, this phase two. And so, you know, that, that was the, the output was really just the findings and the collation of all the research that then led to, you know, implementing a prototype in, in phase two. Oh, that's really interesting. So really big, big discovery phase and calling that into recommendations. Yeah, one thing I just want to hit on what Andrew said is when he was describing those 107 people, he wasn't describing user representatives. He was describing actual end users. Yes. And that's a huge distinction that we miss all the time from an acquisition standpoint. We rely far too much on user representatives and not actual talking to the actual end users, the end of the value chain, the warfighters who are the consumers of the capabilities we deliver. And so that that was a, an eye-awakening experience for me as part of the, the Navy's effort here is Andrew and their crew, when I talk about finding those use cases for Navy, we're actually talking to Navy users. They, you know, we, we kind of, you know, let them go at it. They, they talked to 20 plus commands and, and got all types of great feedback to improve the learn to win product for the Department of Navy, the things that, that are really important to us that would also benefit the Air Force, which would also benefit Learn to wins, you know, commercial customers. Um, you know, so I like to say that I have an impact in the Rams making the Super Bowl as well. <laughs> That's good. So Absolutely. it's a very familiar challenge, this idea of the voice of the customer and discerning is that customer some internal customer that's still so many steps away from no kidding, the people that are going to use this solution. So I, I think, yeah, distinguishing between uh, defining customers and end consumers of actual products and services is critical. Andrew, I want to ask you, as a small business, what support or information has helped your company better understand working with the Department of Navy? 
I'd say it's really been the people who have helped us along the way. I mean, Kevin has been an incredible resource uh, for us, Um, his team, you know, Steve Frail and Emily and Ayaka, a lot of folks that we've been linked up with who have been either our technical point of contact, which is kind of your, you know, main point person for a SBIR project, as well as, you know, the second and third degree folks that they have introduced us to have been, you know, incredibly helpful. And, And a lot of times they're the first person that we go to whenever we have a question on anything uh well you know since since there's a lot of things you have to figure out you know where are we going to deploy what what sort of security and accreditation processes do we have to go through you know what is going to be the contracting mechanism what's kind of the overall acquisition strategy you know that leads to just a ton of second and third order questions um even things that you know uh we had to learn for the first time, like, how do we invoice? And, you know, what is this wide area workflow system? And, uh, sure. And, and where do I register it between SAM.gov and, you know, these different systems? So a lot of it's quite new and they were great resources, uh, both kind of the, the individuals. And I think this is also a place where AFWorks and NavalX have helped to put out a lot of really good knowledge. You know, I, I go back and reference those websites pretty often and the different kind of best practices guides or reference documents that they've put together has been, I think, a huge benefit to the startup ecosystem that's looking to work with the Department of Defense. Yeah, just learning the ropes and the nuts and the bolts of working together. Uh, Kevin, I want to kind of pivot that question over to you. How has working with L2W helped you better understand working with small businesses in general? It's it's been a really great learning experience. I, I would say the relationship with learn to win was upfront built on trust. And that helped a great deal for us from a government's perspective, being honest with, with learn to win and and vice versa. And so when I'm describing the challenges associated with learn to win as a small business, having to navigate to over the course of a year between three different CICD pipelines back to the original one, you know, then being brutally honest about the impact on them as a small business is important because I, I don't, I, I've, I've always worked for government. So I, I don't have that, that perspective. And so it, it's shown me a bit of empathy working with Learn to Win, understanding the position they're in and the impact, the decisions we make, the actions we take or the inaction that, that, that we're not taking. Um, you know, we, this, this gets into, you know, being able to transition the capability ultimately into production. Uh, you know, I definitely have a better perspective now from a VC perspective, you know, what what they're trying to to, to find in these small businesses to, to make their next round of investment. And, you know, it's the government's slow and we can't we can no longer if we want to adopt innovative technology into the government, we can no longer be OK with just saying, hey, that's just how long it takes. We've got to figure out ways to, to, to tackle that problem. Um, and I think there are small pockets of organizations trying to do exactly that. Um, we've just got to empower them. And, and and help them cut through. You said all the enormous amounts of red tape. It's it's there, plenty to cut through. Yeah, is there a sense in which you're trying to help a small business c- commercialize the solution fast enough to do them good and you know to sort of achieve lift? Yeah, so my thought on that is, um, I feel like you're you're asking about is is it important for there to be commercialization opportunity for that small business? Yeah, uh, it's like uh, the, the metaphor is almost like, you know, uh, and, and they've expanded timelines so that there's enough time for uh, sometimes it wasn't enough time. It's like having too short a runway 
to like get a plane off the ground, metaphorically speaking, but also at the same time, not slowing the whole show down so that they can't commercialize things in time. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely, I view our, our role here, it, the, the, the spectrum has shifted. You know, R&D comes from industry, not from Department of Defense anymore, especially as it relates to things for, for associated with business systems. And so uh, I, there, there absolutely must be dual use opportunity for these types of technologies. And I view us in the DOD as trying to make sure we're, we're getting our equities represented in terms of the maybe unique needs for, for, for the Department of the Navy in this context. Is are, are there some capabilities that are more important to us than they might be for industry right now? And therefore, can we supplement with resources to get those into this, the development backlog for, for, in this context, learn to win? But but absolutely, I mean, we, we like if 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 the industry investments go away, I don't the, the company's not going to be there. Like there's, I, I DoD is not going to you know take ownership of that full scale investment. That's just not how the economy is set up today. Uh, that, that's the way I view it. Yeah, yeah, it has to be mutually beneficial. Uh, small businesses, there is they have to eventually turn a profit and achieve that lift that I was describing, kind of like getting a plane off the ground. So much so that I would just say that. Um, when when Andrew and, and the team, when we, when we got together for some ideation sessions early on, when we're prioritizing work, you know, and Andrew can attest to this, part of the conversation was, well, let's prioritize some of these dual use things first and foremost, since, since that's the opportunity to drive higher external investment. If, if we can ask for something that would benefit the Department of the Navy, that would also benefit, you know, the commercial co- companies that either Learn to Win already has or is pursuing, that's a bigger benefit to us than if we ask them to go fork their baseline for some unbelievably unique requirement that the Navy might have. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And something I, I may just add in here, Anthony, is I think, you know, our, our company, like, we'll be fine. We've got a really good commercial business in sports in corporate training, and it's it's growing really rapidly. And, and we'll, if we need to, we can justify the next round of funding on purely the commercial progress. And so I think that's why dual use to some extent is quite important, where, if there's a you know a delay in in um, a, a certain you know DevOps environment or or something isn't quite operational yet, then we have the the commercial side of the business we can kind of rely on, and I think that's part of why the logic uh, that AFWorks and others have been pursuing is let's try and seed commercial um, businesses that also have defense applicability, and let's kind of help to inform their roadmap of what they're building so that it benefits defense as well. I think we're extrapolating or, or zooming out from our personal experience, where I get concerned about some of these issues is I think the, the core goal for everyone involved should be to deliver the very best capabilities to the warfighter um, so that the U.S. you know maintains its competitive advantage against near-peer competitors. And without getting kind of too overly, I don't know, apocalyptic or anything, I, I do think that you know the domains of artificial intelligence and cyber and autonomy are going to define the next conflict, uh, you know, heaven forbid uh, that it that it happens anytime soon. And so then developing the very best, you know, AI technologies, and then harnessing those for national security, I think is a hugely important objective for the country. And what I am concerned about is that the next generation AI technology is likely to be built by a high tech startup. Um, and that's kind of, it, it likely won't be built by the big tech companies. And that's this whole kind of notion around the innovators dilemma that Clay Christensen has written about much more extensively than I can summarize. Um, but if you think about, you know, the the most promising cutting edge technologies are probably going to be built by, by startups that are small now, 
but will raise hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars over the coming years. And I worry that if the Department of Defense is not closely linked with those startups, if they say, man, we're getting so much more traction in industry, let's just focus all of our energy at industry and just develop solutions for, you know, things like insurance fraud detection or, you know, uh, autonomous driving for trucks or things that like aren't really adapted to the particular needs of defense, then we will be living in a, a very different reality about our ability to compete with, you know, in particular China, where there isn't that distinction between industry and military. Like China can force the most promising AI researchers to work on government problems and they don't have any choice about it. That's not something that we do in America. I don't think it's something we should do uh, because I think capitalism is a much better system. But how can we fully harness those capabilities and build a system so that, you know, the the private investment that's going to put hundreds of millions of dollars into these technologies and the engineers who are in the, you know, 0.1% of AI research globally are working on Department of Defense problems. Um, And that's the piece where learn to win will be fine. But if if there's some lessons that I've learned or, or some ways that we can contribute to making sure that, you know, the world changing AI company that's founded in Silicon Valley uh, works on Department of Defense problems as a core part of their mission. You know, that's the mission that I want to try to uh, contribute to. And don't worry about being apocalyptic. We all saw, so all saw the Terminator movies, so we know it's coming. But I want to ask you both, what have been some of the unforeseen challenges that both of you have had to overcome? I don't want to say unforeseen. It, it should have been seen, but it's it's the consistent problem of, you know, valley of death, you know, transitioning these technologies into production in the context of, you know, larger programs of record. You know, that's where the resources are in the, you know, in the Department of Defense. And the the challenge I see with it is that we we we're not set up to do that successfully and we're we're certainly not incentivized to do it. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we have this structure of these large programs where you're planning out multiple years into the future. And this is especially important in the context of information technology, but you know, you, you build your plan and your strategy, your acquisition strategy, you, you palm for dollars, you, 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 you end up getting the dollars, and then you're, you're, you're just accountable to that plan against, you know, those parameters of cost schedule performance and variance of any way, shape, or form is, is, is negative. Uh, it's, it's not a good thing. And, and that's, that's, I think that's very old school thinking. Um, that's not how industry does it, as far as I can tell. Um, and so, we need to have opportunities built into these large acquisition programs to provide some resources to these new and up and coming technologies that would benefit those particular programs to, to pivot and actually practice agility. You know, we, we, we talk about agility all the time and applying agile principles on paper, but, you know, you seem to be chastised for changing direction or course on these large programs of record. And so, if we don't have those opportunities built into the normal behavior of executing these programs, we're going to continue to run into these challenges. Like I feel like we're facing with learn to win now where we've got a capability that uh, is operational. Uh, it meets all the cybersecurity requirements from, from a department of defense perspective. Uh, it's available for consumption, but we can't get it transitioned into a place where we can bring customers to provide resources to, to, to use it. And so we've been trying to think outside the box of opportunities for doing that a little bit differently. Uh, you know, rather than transitioning the capability to a large program of record, we've been trying to think through, well, can we make it available through one of the 
working capital fund service centers as a consumable service, you know, with a rate car. And so that, that's the struggle I, I still see. I, sh- I should have seen it coming because I, you know, I, you encounter it time and time again, but, you know, the Valley of Death is, is a real thing. Um, and uh, I really think from a program office perspective, we have to normalize that behavior of building in those opportunities to the plan for investigating, searching for these technologies, normalizing that type of behavior for uh, finding opportunities of, of new innovative ways of doing things, as opposed to just being held accountable to stick to a plan that you created, you know, two or three years prior. If you can give us some uh, further examples, what what are the sort of the perturbations or disruptions or the var? I think you used the word variances. Uh, just help us understand that. What does that look like? And you know, so you can explain the problem. Well, I mean, it's you, you look at look at the IT industry three years ago. It looks much different than it does today. Mm-hmm. You know, look at all the advancements in terms of you know cloud native capabilities. And so, you know, three years ago, your plan was to you know, perhaps still build your application on premise and, you know, only use infrastructure as a service. But now some of a lot of these cloud native capabilities have, have passed the, the, the gauntlet of cybersecurity accreditation for the Department of Defense. And so that's opened the aperture for normalizing that type of implementation within your program. But since you planned for, for how you're going to execute your infrastructure and your architecture three years ago, the notion of, of varying on that plan, you know, gives this notion of, of risk or perspective of risk that, you know, a whole bunch of people have to say yes to, and, and generally we're risk adverse. And the result is we stick to that dated plan as opposed to being innovative and adopting the new thing that came along in IT that happens every year. And, and, and that's kind of the problem is we, we, we seem to apply the same execution approach for software today that we still do for, you know, building ships or aircraft or submarines. Gotcha. You could be be, uh, delivering obsolescence by the time the program is fully realized. It kind of links back to that innovator's dilemma concept that Andrew mentioned in the sense of while you were expecting everything to go as normal, in came all these disruptions to industry. And now, you know, here you are, you're working on last year's solutions when uh, the world just changed around you, where you got leapfrogged by those forces. Yeah, very, very interesting problem. As we wind down, a couple of questions for you. How will L2W be offered to the Department of Navy? Uh, we've been underway with this phase two SBIR with Learn to Win for uh, about a year now. And so we're looking for opportunities to transition it. And so we're, we're taking two angles for that. One angle is the traditional angle is, you know, how can we align this with a formal program of record that would then resource it in some capacity and provide it out to consumers? Obviously, within the PUMLB space, we do all the manpower personnel training education uh, capabilities for the Navy. And so it's, it's in the right organization to make that happen. It's just a matter of working the mechanics of it. The other angle is, well, how can we offer this up as a consumable service in the context of one of the service centers like a working capital fund organization, you know, they, they act as, you know, technical agents for making, giving access to cloud services, perform application performance monitoring services. Can we get learn to win added to their rate card as a shared service? And then customers of it could then under a fee for service model, come to their organization, pay for it. And then we can get that economies of scale from a licensing and a delivery standpoint from that, that service center. So those are the two angles we're working, program of record or service center. And it's just a matter of 
you know, identifying what the risks or opportunities are for those delivery models. Excellent. And it kind of ties back to that other question earlier about the, the commercialization of the solution. And Andrew, again, back to uh, the, the concerns of DAU as a, a learning organization. I'm understanding that Learn to Win has a lot of learning science baked into what you do. Uh, tell us more about that. What is the approach? How do these learning sciences come to bear? Sure. Thanks for asking that. So I spent a decade really focused on um, educational research and learning science before starting Learn to Win. Um, and it started actually working with college professors to redesign how their classes were taught um, to use, uh, it's called pedagogical, but sort of best practices for teaching. And we did research across, you know, 10 or so different courses in chemistry, calculus, biology, um, psychology, using technology in ways to try to drive better learning outcomes. And the results were profound. Uh, We found that across, uh, say, a 400-person lecture class in Econ 101, we were able to uh, improve final exam scores from about 71% in the traditional lecture course um, to about 88% in this active learning uh, tech-enabled course. Um, and then when we dug beneath the surface, we realized that you know, not only were all student groups improving, but it was students who were really likely to struggle, like uh, first-generation college students, underrepresented minority students, who disproportionately benefited through this improved approach uh, to teaching and learning. Um, and at that point, when I you know saw that study and then we replicated it in biology and in math and and this research actually got written up in the New York Times because it was so groundbreaking, um, I kind of became convicted that, man, this is just the way that we should teach. Like we should get rid of the you know chalk and talk or uh, you know sage on the stage style of teaching. We should use technology that makes the learning experience active, that makes it personalized, that makes it data driven, um, and that kind of takes into account, uh, really, the science of how knowledge acquisition happens, um, which, you know, though the uh, traditional methods of teaching with the PowerPoint are the most common, uh, it's really not based on any science that that works. Um, and so uh, that was kind of the, the inspiration and the mission for Learn to Win is can we take all of those principles around um, how to structure learning most effectively, how to uh, design a active uh, experience, how to challenge students right in their zone of proximal development, you know, how to use feedback and personalize it in ways that maximally improve their performance. Can we build all that into a product and then make it so easy to use that you don't have to have a PhD in education research or you don't have to be a professional learning experience designer. Um, But if you're, you know, a football coach or you're uh, a manager of a sales team or you're a, you know, maintenance uh, instructor at a, uh, you know, Naval Air Station, that you can use this product and bring all of that science into the design and delivery of, of the experience. Um, so that's, that's kind of in a nutshell where, where the learn to win concept came from. And I think we're only, you know, like 10 or 15% of the way there. Like this is very much something that we're constantly trying to improve, you know, bring in new research, bring in new features, new principles that can help to actualize that vision. Are you speaking to a form of adaptive learning when you describe that understanding, the, the proximal learning concept that you For sure. mentioned? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, a 400 person lecture class, you're putting everybody through the exact same experience that you could, you could, you know, have a, a personalized assessment, almost like a personal trainer uh, for your mental development. That's really what we're trying to build uh, with Learn to Win. Outstanding. Thank you. Now, what brought you to the government? You've been having, uh, I'm sure, a very good time working with these professional sports teams. You came to the labyrinth of the government. What sort of drew you here? 
Well, I would say I, I feel really fortunate to have met folks like Sam Gray and Kevin Burnett and um, the whole team at Stanford, where where we first got exposed to the the opportunity to work with the government. And I have to say, you know, initially it wasn't something that I had expected. Uh, you know, we we started with sports teams and then we we're looking commercially. But as I got to know the work that they were doing and uh, kind of the problems and opportunities that they saw, I just felt like it was incredibly important for us as a company, for uh, myself as an American, someone who believes in freedom, democracy, capitalism, and a rules-based international order uh, to kind of do my part in trying to serve the country by building good technology that can be helpful to the missions of people who are on the front lines of making that possible. And so I, I think that as we've, uh, you know, we've learned it's, it's, it's a certainly some challenging problems that we're working on, but we just feel a lot of conviction that this is things that we should work on. And I think Hacking for Defense is a phenomenal program to expose more students to these fascinating, important, interesting uh, problems to work on that are, are connected to serving the warfighter and, and working in national security. And I hope that, you know, I think we, I, I saw a stat that we were the first Hacking for Defense company to transition to uh, a phase three contract through the SBIR program. And I certainly hope that we're not the last. I hope that there's hundreds of companies that come after us that also decide that contributing to problems that our country's military faces are important things to work on. And that even if it's a little bit complex to figure out and navigate, that it's worth it. And that, you know, we all put our heads together and figure out how we can create that national security innovation ecosystem that we envision to be as as seamless as possible, since it's a super important mission, I think. Thank you for that answer. That's great. And, and thanks for your vision and for working with the DOD. Uh, I'm going to throw this question to the both of you. You can kind of tag team. Uh, what advice do you have for those listening who are uh, just starting their journey and, and this thing called a, a government private partnership with small business? What advice would you have to offer? Well, on, on the government side, I'd say it's all about normalizing the behavior of constantly searching for opportunities. Um, like I said, we, from a traditional program of record standpoint, we, we, we develop a plan and we execute against the plan. We should always be searching. Um, it's so important that uh, programs, uh, portfolios within PEOs, within organizations should be having people 100% focused on that search. Um, that's something we're trying to do in PEMLB with each of our tech directors for our portfolios is establish tech radars, you know, which is constantly real-time monitoring opportunities for uh, investments that could benefit uh, the particular portfolio at hand. You know, you know, break them up by horizons, you know, identify what's, what's a near-term opportunity versus a longer-term opportunity, and, and always keep your eye on that. Um, and the other thing I would say is set those folks up to be successful. Empower those people to be able to come to the PEO or the portfolio managers and make investment recommendations. Make sure you have resources that you can run pilots and prototypes with, and it's it be 100% okay for for them to fail. Um, you know, we we don't take enough risk. You know, it's we're, we're always down on ourselves if we run a pilot and it, it leads to failure. Well, what did you learn from it? If you didn't learn anything from it, okay, there's a problem. But if you learned a lot about what went wrong and how to you know modify future opportunities. That, that's not a failure. That's an opportunity. And so empowering people and making sure that they understand and empathize with the small businesses. And, and I think that's a huge knowledge gap with government 
is, you know, we don't, a lot of folks don't have the foggiest idea how venture capital works. Um, I wasn't exposed to it until about a year ago. Um, and, I, you know, I actively sought opportunities to learn about it. I was able to participate in this Defense Ventures Executive Seminar where, you know, leading venture capital firms came in and small businesses came in and they talked to us about, you know, what, what makes them, you know, take a, a risk in a particular company and why they avoid another one. And small businesses talk about a lot of the things Andrew was just talking about as far as how they make a decision on, you know, where, where to target opportunities. So, so definitely, you know, con- constantly be searching for opportunities, identify a workforce that is empowered to search for those opportunities and, and make sure they're actually empowered with knowledge for what it means to work with industry. Excellent answer. Andrew, your thoughts. Yeah, well, I think for other entrepreneurs, I, I'm constantly pushing them to think about working with the Department of Defense as part of their strategy, especially if they're in an area that they believe could have value. And it's perhaps an unpopular opinion or an uncommon opinion. I've seen a lot of people on you know Twitter and at various conferences who have been skeptical or pessimistic about whether startups can succeed in, in this market. And while that that may be descriptive of some of the pains and and there probably is a rational argument that, you know, pursuing just a commercial B2B SaaS play is simpler and easier. I think I, I hope that there's more people who will just step up and say, hey, it's hard, but let's make this work. Let's figure out a way to, to make it possible. And let's not just think about what's the easiest path towards a, you know, billion dollar company. Like, let's think about what's the most impactful path and what's the the most enduring path and you know, I think the the challenges that we've run into, I, I hope that we can share a lot of the lessons of here's the path that has kind of worked and here's the playbook that we've developed. And and maybe that'll, you know, make the, the road a little bit easier for the next 10 or the next 20 that that uh, uh, pursue a similar route. Um, but I think the, you know, at its core, I, I, I think that just encouraging more people to give it a shot, because if we get more smart brains working on this, then I'm sure that we'll find a way that that makes it possible that that meets all the needs of different stakeholders involved. And I think maybe just a final piece is, is, uh, you know, we've been really fortunate to have incredible investors who have supported us. And so other founders, if they're looking to raise venture money, especially if you're thinking about doing a dual use startup, uh, you know, think about the investors you can put around you who are going to be committed to that vision and mission as well. And uh, there's there's a great crop of former DIU folks who are now raising venture funds or former program managers who have made the transition over to be an investor. And, and I'd say, you know, look at that list of folks and see who um, is interested in specifically investing in these spaces, because I think you'll find a willing and supportive audience to, to support your mission. That's great advice. I want to thank you both. My guests today have been Andrew Powell and Kevin Burnett. More about them in the show notes. We'll link out to their respective sites. Andrew and Kevin, thank you so much for your time with us on All Things Small Business. Any parting thoughts? Let's go Rams. All right. <laughs> go Rams. <laughs> thanks, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. And thanks, thanks, Anthony. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you've been generous with your time. Sure. Thank you both. This is Ken Karkoff once more. I want to thank our guests for participating in today's conversation. Your insights and perspectives will surely help our listeners. And an invitation to our listeners, if you'd like to participate as a guest in a future conversation, please reach out to me at kenneth.karkoff at dau.edu. Till next time, stay engaged and collaborate across your networks. Everyone's talents and skills are needed within the defense industrial base 
as we fulfill the national defense strategy together.